David committing adultery, and here's you know Abraham offering his wife, um, you know Sarah to the Egyptians, and here's you know Paul murdering. I mean, you just like obviously, obviously, the the ideal is the ideal, but God is willing to work with those who fall short. Hey everybody, Mike Erie here. Welcome to the Vox Podcast. So glad you're tuning in. Thank you as always for being a part of our family, our community. Uh, there are a couple of things that are like total perks of, of this effort. One is uh, getting to interview all sorts of fascinating people. Um, so I want to introduce you to my friend Sophie. Sophie, say hello to the international Vox audience. Hey there, everyone. <laughs> Sophie. <laughs> All right, we're going to get into Sophie. We're, we'll get into Sophie's story in a bit. But the second perk, Sophie, and, and you're a Bible geek, so you'll, you'll like this. Yes, I'm starting to get catalogs mailed to me by huge publishers asking me what books I want and what authors I would like to interview. That, that might be, I mean, seriously, I sat through probably an hour going through this and just went, oh, this is fantastic. So anyway, I, I don't know why I'm sharing that other than it might be the coolest thing for Bible geeks in the history of the world. There's no way N.T. Wright is on there. Like, no, that's not an option, is it? I will say, well, let me just say this. N.T. Wright has his own podcast now. So he does. You not know that? Uh -huh. Oh, man. All right. So I guess we'll lose another Vox listener. It is, um, I think it's just called the N.T. Wright Podcast. And it is N.T. Wright just taking questions in his wonderful Ooh. accent. Okay. Well, we've lost Sophie. So, <laughs> um, Sophie, so, the, so check out how weird this is. All right. So, Sophie, um, so I'm friends. Uh, I, excuse me. I went to Miami of Ohio. Mm -hmm. I, I pastored at a church called Oxford Bible Fellowship. And that was my first. I was an investment banker in Cincinnati. Um, and so I became a youth pastor at OBF, as it's affectionately called. Yeah. And there were several families there that adopted me into their lives that I will be forever grateful for. Uh, one of them is the Smetana family, mm -hmm. um, Dave and Terry and, and their kids. And I used to play video games over there. I was just this single punk, didn't know, you know, didn't know anything about anything. And they just totally adopted me. But um, as it turns out, all these years later... Um, I have, uh, we have friends in Lake Tahoe who told me about this, this woman named Sophie, who now lives in Oxford, Ohio, and is in a Bible study with my friend Terry Smetana and going to Oxford Bible Fellowship, which, which blows my mind. And so Sophie, hello, welcome to Ohio. <laughs> You've been here how long? Uh, just about two years now two years now mm -hmm. and and you grew you grew up in tahoe right Truckee, is that what it is uh no you know what i grew up just all around my dad's a pastor so we moved pretty frequently but i was in tahoe for six years six years mm -hmm. and that was for what the ski uh, I lifestyle started... <laughs> i wish um i wish that was what took me there actually i went uh to do a young life internship um, and then after that ended, uh, <laughs> <laughs> there's that a story. Conclusion, um, I met a handsome fellow and, uh, I stayed <laughs> stuck yeah. around for him. Yeah. How, that's how, kind of how it works. So dad was a pastor. Um, mm -hmm. Sophie's got a super interesting sort of uh, deconstruction, reconstruction story, although she's very young to have lived so much of, <laughs> of, uh, of faith crises. And so this, you know, as with any, any story, there's a lot of disappointment in the middle of all that, but, mm. um, so your dad was a pastor, you, uh, young life, for those of you that don't know, is a, is a, an organization that primarily focuses on, uh, high school and junior high, uh, there, it's called something different for junior high, but Young Life specifically, Wildlife, right? Wildlife. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which isn't a very appropriate name for those of us who've ever uh, ministered with uh, junior high students. But uh, Young Life is an organization that really works to like reach high schoolers where they're at and, and mm -hmm. all those sorts of things. And you were there to be on staff, correct? Um, so it started out as an un unpaid internship. Of course, uh, of course. Yeah. 
it was actually something that I'm not, I don't think many young lives around the country do. Uh, it was called Lifehouse and it was a group of us and we, we all lived together. Mm-hmm. And then we did ministry probably 20 or 30 hours a week. Um, and then we had part-time jobs, you know, to pay the rent. But uh, the idea was how, what does it look like to live uh, in community with other Christians um, and minister alongside them? So I, and I, 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 even then and now, I love the idea. I love the, the thought of being in community with other Christians to minister. Right. Um, however. Yeah. However, uh, I think it needs to be well thought through. Uh, <laughs> in order to be executed uh, in a successful way, um, and unfortunately, that was not that was not the case for for Tahoe Young Life. Yes. So. And 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 how how did that that period of life end for you? Yeah, I got kicked out hard. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Oh, it was, it was gnarly. Um, yeah. So I, I had been uh, part of the group for a year and actually, uh, right at about at the 10 month mark, uh, they started talking about adding me onto staff. Um, they start raising, yeah, I start raising support. Um, you know, be, uh, more in a leadership position. Um, and then things, things took a turn. Uh, Our leadership was really unstable. That was part of the problem. Um, And so as our leader's personal life was kind of imploding, um, our group imploded with that. And uh, I was the first one to kind of, you know, get hit with the wake of a lot of... um, emotional and personal and spiritual baggage. So, mm, mm. and I love how the, 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 as the leaders imploding, you're the one that has the, the loads of baggage. I mean, that's, that's always, that's always pretty convenient. Uh, yeah, it was, I mean, just the whole thing was so unfortunate, but um, it was a really, really important Part of my life and I'm, I'm grateful now that it happened uh not at the time i was i was pretty bummed about it at the time but yeah you know what why are you grateful now i mean so you came from a, pa- a, a pastor's a pk a pastor's kid yeah and so you'd been involved in this thing organization that can be weird and glorious called church <laughs> then you have this experience yeah so where were you after that so i this is why I think it was so important that it happened. Um, on paper at the time, I was just the perfect uh, candidate for like ministry, for being like a, a Christian poster child, basically. Like my dad's a pastor. I'm, you know, I'm giving my life to Christ. I'm, uh, you know, in ministry. I'm in it. And, um, and I didn't see there were blind spots in my life that I, I wasn't aware of. Uh, and then I had this moment where the people, you know, that, that should be my people just completely turned their backs on me, you know, I mean, and not just turn their backs on me, but there were some really nasty things they said about me, rumors that were going around as a tiny town, you know, of like 4,000 people and the group of Christians yeah. was small. And so, um, like, like, I just felt like I couldn't trust a single Christian in that town um, hmm. anymore. And it, what it did was open my eyes to see what it feels like to be rejected by Christians, um, hmm. to be pushed to the margins. And I can't, I, I don't, I don't want to, I know that there are people who have been pushed away in extraordinary ways and I can't completely empathize with those people, but I, I, it, it opened my eyes in a new way to be like, Oh, this, this happens to a lot of people. They Mm. are hurt. Um, they're really wounded by some of the Christian community. Um, and so I'm just, I'm hyper aware of that now. And I, I want to be someone 
who reaches out to everyone um, and doesn't, uh, you know, doesn't make them feel less than. Um, yeah, but your but your faith faith wise, you it, it seems like because when did you get your master's? After that, correct? Yeah, after after the fact. Um, so you faith wise, so, it was still pretty pretty solid. It seems like. Yeah, absolutely. So I had this moment. I remember distinctly. It wasn't too long after I got kicked out. I I sat down and I had to say like, okay, um, do I still believe that Jesus is true? Uh, that he uh, is beautiful. That that his message is life saving, life giving. Um, and can I? can I disassociate him from Christian? Can I, mm. can I say, you know, like, can I still believe in Jesus and not like Christian? Cause I think it's, it's really easy to conflate the two. Um, and so I had to say, okay, Christians aren't Christ. Uh, and so I still, I still had that faith at the end of the day. Um, my trust, <laughs> my trust in Christians, uh, just generally was diminished, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> that's never happened. That has never happened anywhere else. I'm sure. Right. Oh yeah. That's yeah. such a bummer. And then, and then when did you decide to go get your degree in what was it? Apologetics? Yeah. Cultural apologetics. Uh, I decided to do that, uh, a few years later, maybe two or three years after the event. Wow. And that was, um, uh, something that, I don't know, did it resolve anything for you in terms of the journey at that point? Was it, do you think it was ultimately a good thing to, to go and get trained like that? Do you think it's relevant to where people are at oh. these days? I mean, all of those sorts of questions. Absolutely. Um, so, <laughs> so I actually started the program um, with the purpose of combating Christian assholes. This is what I told everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I said, like, that's why I'm going into um, this field because I, I like, I really want to show people uh, that there are those of us that are not jerks. Um, yeah. And 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 at the time, it was the motivation that I needed in order to start the program. And and. By the time I graduated, I realized that was too narrow um, of, a, of a focus, that uh, the reason I love apologetics is because I, I see in our culture this, this deep longing, you know, this, this, um, this desire for something greater than what we have, that you know, I mean, I call it heaven. I don't mean something in the sky, but that that eternal, uh, that eternal thing that we're we're made for. And but people put they they put different labels on things and say that that's what it is, and uh, they miss it. And I and I and I see it, and I want to give people, you know, like say, hey, look, I I see what you're you're reaching for, but I think it's something different. I think there's. Uh, think there's something more satisfying that, that you're missing right at the moment. So, yeah. Yeah. So that puts you in an interesting kind of tender spot in the sense of you felt the exclusion of the Christian community unjustly. And, um, and then, and yet on the other hand, you haven't given up on this Jesus fellow to the point where um, you invested lots of time and money in, telling his story and, and helping to contribute to, you know, making him beautiful to people who don't know him yet or who know people who don't make him beautiful. Yeah. So love, love that. Love that. I totally, that totally resonates. And I think there, there are quite a few people in our audience who are in that same space. They've either been hurt by church or hurt by scripture or something, something's been way off. It prompted this whole deconstruction thing and mm -hmm. yet they haven't gotten over this Jesus yet. And they're just yeah. wondering, okay, so where, you know, and how do we build all that back up? So I thought to the Vox audience, um, as I got to know Sophie, I thought, oh my goodness, I want to have her as a conversation partner because um, articulate, young, but you, but there's a deep compassion 
for people who mm-hmm. who can't yet separate out Jesus from his church and um yeah you know and and I just think there's if, if the the uh, I had a, a guest on a couple of weeks ago who he and I were into traditional apologetics like here's the evidence for the yeah. resurrection and here's the evidence and we were talking about how much that's changed now it's not is Christianity plausible, but now it's, is Christianity even desirable? I mean, is it, Mm -hmm. is it, does it promote anything good in the world? Yeah. So I love kind of love where you're at. And uh, so anyway, that's a bit about Sophie. Sophie, thank you for telling your story. Um, uh, Sophie is married, has one sweet little dude, Arlo. And tell us about the naming of Arlo, because that's amazing. (laughs) Um, Well, I don't know if it's really that exciting of a story. John and I uh, couldn't agree on a name. Um, And then at the hospital, they were like, here's his birth certificate. What's his name? And we looked at each other. We'd thrown out Arlo a few times. And my husband was just like, "Uh, Arlo? and, and And we went with it. Um, but, but here's the thing. I don't know if you've ever noticed this people for some reason want the name to have some sort of meaning. Um, yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, like that's a very important thing to them. So we've just started to say, Oh, he's named after Arlo Guthrie. We really love folk music. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) Just, you know what? You could make something up. Arlo is Hebrew for faithfulness under pressure. Yeah, and nobody would know. Oh, I just think sure. Arlo is such a cool name. And you throw it. in you throw in your last name, Arlo Cherry, and I'm like, I'm in. I'm all in for sweet it's Arlo. Now I thought, Sophie, mm. um, that you and I could uh work into some QA together. So so Perfect. I'm gonna throw some stuff out. And, uh, we don't spend, I mean, Sophie doesn't even know the questions. I barely know the questions and haven't spent any time kind of digging through them. So anyway, I just started listening to your podcast, uh, from the beginning a few weeks ago, and I'm loving it. Thank you so much. It gets worse. So you're, you're, you're peaking early. Um, I was hoping for some advice. I live in Utah. I'm 27 year old single woman. And I, Work basically with all non-Christians. I know about 150 people, a very diverse group, and I love them all. My problem is how to know the limits I should put on my kindness, if any, when Mm. around guys. There are some around my age I just straight up avoid because they look at me too much even though they're married. Yuck. But there are some who sit isolated and I try to involve in group conversations and I don't know if I'm giving off friend vibes or more than that. Uh, Then I also have an older friend around 50. And by the way, just for the record, around 50 is not old. Okay. Just, just, I, I, I hear that from people who are around 50. That is super young and it's considered the new 20, except you have money. Um, I have an older friend around 50 who has come to my church once. I've been thinking about asking if he wants to study the Bible before work, but I know enough about his life that he makes me a little uncomfortable. Mm. I don't want to live uh, safe in a bubble, but I do want wisdom. Some guidance would be much appreciated. So what do you think? How do you, how, how do you balance the kind of missional impulse to like, Hey, great. These are non-Christians. Here's somebody that's lonely and yet everything's been so sexualized in our culture that, that I see why she would be concerned as a 27 year old single woman about giving off vibes. So what would your, what would your advice to her be? If you're going to go through with it, meet in a public place. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah I, that also uh, rings a bell for me as well, saying that a 50 year old man wants to hang out with a 27 year old woman. Um, and it could be completely, you know, innocuous, but yeah, fifty-year-old men. It's possible to be fifty-year-old and awesome. I'm just throwing that out there. I don't <laughs> know why no, this is striking a chord with me. I'm not <laughs> sure. Too close to home. Oh now, hey, hey now, hey now. Sorry. Sorry. Um, <laughs> no, that absolutely makes sense. Mm. But it sounds like she's the one thinking of initiating a Bible study together. So who's come to my church once, I've been thinking about asking if he wants to study the Bible. 
Yeah, I, so I guess I, uh, my question is, why does it need to be one-on-one? Is there an opportunity to pull other people into it? Uh, because it's just, I feel like we live in a time and place where, like I said, that, that age gap, um, it just initially makes me, uh, it makes me feel a little uncomfortable. Yeah, just hearing um, it. Just hearing it. So, yep. I would say, is there a group that you could form? I don't know why it needs to be a, you know, one-on-one situation. Yeah. So, so as a non-woman and Mm -hmm. as somebody who is raising a daughter and now aware of all of the crap that goes into being a young lady, I mean, I had no idea. I had no idea, no idea. And there was the, yeah, I mean, just safety and perception and all this Mm -hmm. crazy stuff. Um, I, I this, and I love the question. The question is, hey, does kindness trump comfortability? Right. And I would say in this case, no. Um, I, I would I would say put you if if you've got any like if your spidey sense to use a, a comic book yeah. metaphor is going off, man, listen to that thing and just simply say, I love your heart for this person, but if if there are things that make you uncomfortable about them, do not. Um, be alone with this person and do not talk about spiritual things because that gets all wacky. That can get all wacky as well. Yeah. So I, so, so I would say, and I don't know, um, I, I probably wouldn't even do the one-on-one in public thing. I just wouldn't even do a one-on-one at all. It sounds like kind of that's where you were, you were landing too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it just, yeah, like I said, it just it, that makes me feel uncomfortable, and I, I maybe that's an opportunity to introduce this person to um, you know a, a, maybe a man that could uh, disciple him or help him out. But um, I I get that impulse to be the person, uh, yeah. that, you know, that helps people grow spiritually. Like that's your your first thought. You want to give that. I get it. Um, but sometimes it's to step back and say, am I the right person? Because sometimes you aren't. And it's okay to admit yeah. that, uh, yeah. you yeah. know, somebody could That's right. be better served by being with someone else. Yeah. And, and God loves this individual far more than you do. And, mm-hmm. you know, unless, unless, and I, I, unless there's some contravening, you know, message written on a wall. I would just, I, I don't want you to be in a comfortable bubble, but the fact that you work with all non-Christians already, you're out there. Mm. And, um, and so, but even in the church, I mean, I'd still feel weird. Like I, I don't even, I wouldn't even do this if this, so if this were a disciple of Jesus, because uh, what's that mean these days? So mm. a great question. I would just counsel, stay away, pray that he gets involved in this church, pray for him, Bless him, be nice to him, but never, ever, ever um, get in a situation where that could get weird. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. It's preferable. Awesome. Um, All right. So here's one. Egalitarianism versus complementarianism. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, And we'll explain this, but uh, let me read the question first. I first and foremost want to thank you, blah, blah, blah. Thank you for the encouragement. I recently was made aware of some new terminology, as you can see in my subject line, egalitarianism and complementarianism. I would like to know if you believe the church is missing the mark on this and how these two beliefs affect the Me Too movement. Mm-hmm. All right. So so what are these two words that we've talked about them on the podcast before? I'd love to hear your thoughts. Is the church missing the mark on how women are treated in the church. Let's just start there. Sophie, go. Mm. <laughs> um, okay, yeah, personally, I think, yes, that the church is missing the mark, um, especially churches that don't affirm women uh, as being able aff- to be. Okay, yeah. To affirm women yeah, in yeah, what Yeah, to, to uh, in leadership positions. Um, and, and so here's my, my problem is that I've noticed that even if churches say, you know, women are valuable and we love women, but we don't see them in leadership, it, that, uh, 
it, it permeates into different places in the church where and and people maybe don't notice it um, or let it slide, but I just see it sneak up in just weird ways. And I um, can you think of examples that you've seen personally? Uh, yeah. If, if you can, off the top of your head, I was just curious. Um, what that yeah, kind so, of dripping down okay, looks like. I think of um, just. Sometimes, you know, I've, I've noticed sometimes from the pulpit, uh, a pastor who holds, uh, you know, a complementarian view can um, sometimes exclude women in a sermon. They focus on, um, you know, like a, they focus on what the man should do in, in a certain situation and maybe miss what women can do. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the first churches that we checked out uh when we moved they, <laughs> they the guy was doing a sermon um on something paul said and he addressed the the husbands in the audience seven times like i was sitting there counting and i looked around and i'm never once and it, and it wasn't even like a gender specific topic that paul was talking about and um but seven times he talked about how men could be better husbands and um, better men and i, I looked around and i did the, congregation with two-thirds women and then just right. like you you are isolating a bunch of us and like what it's unnecessary but um, in that in that view mm-hmm. the reason there are two-thirds women there is because the men haven't been godly leaders so the answer is yep. to pound the men more it's not to address the women right Oh, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, that's the. It's because that, the men aren't stepping up. There's only women right. that want to be leaders, and they can't do it. So. Yeah, and that and that's an argument they'll use even dealing with some of the clear examples biblically of women in leadership. They'll say, "Well, that that's just because there wasn't a man um, who was available." available. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Which is which is so so fascinating. It's painful. It's painful to hear. Now now. Um, what, so relate this to the Me Too movement then. What is, if women are excluded from leadership, then how do you, how does that then play out in all the sexual abuse that, you know, we're seeing covered up by all, I mean, all kinds of denominations by the the egregious sin of some of leaders and all of those sorts of things. What do you, Mm -hmm. what's your take on that? on how this debate kind of affect, uh, affects that cultural issue. Oh man. Well, specifically in the church, I have seen, I mean, I've, I've actually been told, you know, that I need to, uh, cater to my husband's sexual needs and that, um, you know, I, I need to put my own needs aside and do what he wants. And um, I'm worried that having that thought, um, like like that being your mentality, could could let you slip into behaviors that are no longer consensual and or, you know, like you're being in a situation where you feel uncomfortable, uh, but you're being told, well, it's a man, it's somebody who's in leadership, so you need to <laughs> submit to them, right? Um, oh, yeah. So, uh, it, you were told that. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, oh, wow. Okay. Which I was a really uncomfortable situation, but. Um, yeah, I was yeah. surprised that somebody felt the need to tell me that. Um, but yeah, I, I just, I just worry that, that men, especially in the church get a pass, uh, because they're, you know, they're supposed to be the leader and they, and, and um, you know, it's God ordains that they're in leadership. So mm-hmm. there's less questioning, I think, love him through it, you know, that kind mm-hmm. of talk. And it's just so hurtful it's so damaging to women i think um yeah so i i agree that so to the questioner Mm. the terms so egalitarianism is the view that men and women are of equal dignity and worth they are Mm -hmm. different from each other 
But those differences do not demand differences in leadership positions or teaching positions in the church. Right. Complementarianism is that, that, that men and women are equal in dignity and value. They are different, and those differences do manifest themselves in leadership positions. Yeah. The man's primary role is to lead. The woman's primary role is to submit. And they don't mean submit as a doormat, but they mean submit as... Uh, as as the man is the leader, impl- uh, uh, um, <laughs> uh, what am I trying to say? Symbolizing um, Jesus, then uh, the woman then is the church, symbolizing the church's response to Jesus, right? Which is gracious um, submission. So those are the two words. And I used to be, just because that was my seminary and that was what the evangelical environment I grew up in was just... Okay. I was always uncomfortable. It was complementarianism. I was always uncomfortable. And so I always tried to push the, the, the value and the practices a little bit with that stuff. But um, practically, there is a pretty big dividing line now between um, churches that see gender roles as ordained and specific to how the church operates and those of us who think giftedness is primarily the way God arbitrates offices and um, and roles in the church, and um, and so the one thing I would say, and I would add to your comment about the Me Too movement, is if you had women in leadership, um, I, I think you'd have a much different conversation. Now, the the counter example of that is is Willow Creek, right? So okay. Bill Hybels, a champion for women's equality and egalitarianism, a huge church in Chicago. He's he was. You know, he was totally in Willow Creek influential to thousands or millions of people. And then it comes out, you know, that he's he's had all this this ugly, 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 ugly stuff. So it, having women in leadership doesn't mean that it's fail safe. Yeah. Right. But we right. would say it, it clearly uh, creates a much healthier culture. I I think so. Yeah. that's that's where i land on it so but what about but what about the bible sophie the bible doesn't the bible say women be silent and women Mm. submit and all those sorts of things doesn't it say those things goodness (laughs) (laughs) yes it does say them but right yeah um but so you've got context and then also look at paul he, he values women. I don't, I don't know. Like, I feel like it's uh, cherry picking when you start in with the women be silent kind of thing. Um, Cause there's plenty of examples of, you know, women that he honors in the Bible as being wonderful leaders. So. As a, as a non 50 year old woman, mm, yeah. um, how do you see the me too movement? Do you see it as primarily a positive thing for culture and the church, do you see it as a mixed thing? Do you see it as a negative thing? Oh, I I see it as a wonderfully positive thing. Um, but I'm gonna I'm actually gonna borrow from Dave Chappelle if that's okay right now. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so uh, yeah, I I I love it. But um, I think that the church actually can become a really important voice in the Me Too movement. Because we're at a place where, you know, women are coming forward, they're, uh, they're sharing their stories, um, they're saying the things that are necessary for our, for, for, you know, our culture to, to move forward, to, to expose these things that are happening. But there needs to be reconciliation. There's, it can't just be rage uh, and, you know, that, that continues to go. I mean, that anger is going to be, it's important and it needs to, um, you know, it's bringing everything to the surface, but there's got to be a point where we have reconciliation so that we can move on. Um, that's what Dave Chappelle says. And I agree. Really? Uh, about the, about me too? Or yeah, just about reconciliation wow. and restoration. Yeah. Um, you know, but I could see, I could see people hearing that and saying, no, there, there can't be. It's too egregious. This that we, you know, we, there's no letting them off the hook. There's no, you know, it's about time. We have to set the whole thing on fire. Yeah. 
right? There's I, no I like think, restoring. Yeah. Well, nobody should be let off the hook, but um, we, there people, I, I mean, there's gotta be, a, and we can't just say, okay, no more men or, um, sorry, I like, my feminist alarm is going off. It's like, shut up, Sophie. But, but seriously, I think there's, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I really do believe though, there's gotta be this moment where we say, you're not allowed to get away with that kind of behavior anymore, but that we have, we have to come to a place um, where there can be forgiveness, uh, there can be healing, um, you know, and you can't, you never can forget things like that. That's not what I would advocate for at all, but uh, th th need, th something needs to happen rather than just, mm -hmm. you know, continuing to rage forever and ever. Cause it's, that's not going to teach a, the generation of boys coming up how to treat and, and honor women. Oh, that's it, man. It can't all be deconstruction. It just can't all be. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I mean, my 15 year old son and I have dating conversations now that are, that are, I mean, vastly out of the realm of believability of yeah. where I was when I was 15, you know, in terms of, and, and, and some of that's so good. Some of that is so good. Um, and then there are other parts that are, you know, that are almost paralyzing to him about how to act and how to be and, you know, he's, yeah, it's just, it's, it's, and, and I'm with you. I think that's really well said. Um, I'm going to quote you. I'm not going to quote Dave Chappelle on this. I'm going to, I'm going to okay. quote you, Sophie. Um, there, there has to be something else, something after Yeah. that. Cause for the Christian community, the ideal isn't women only in the same way. It's not men only. Right. It's somehow men and women together reflecting the Imago Dei in mutual right. submission. Yeah. Oh, easier said than done, though. Holy cow. So anyway, great, great question. Let's do a couple of more. If you, you got time. Yeah. You got time. You're good. I've got time. All right, let's go. Let's Leviticus 18. So here's the this is the first sentence of this question. Leviticus okay. 18, period. <laughs> <laughs> Leviticus 18, period. Is this what most people in Jesus's day would have had in mind? Whenever they talked about sexual immorality, mm. is it still a relevant guide as we think about sexual immorality today? Oh, this is so good. Specifically, do you think Exodus 18, 19 is anything to say to us today or can we just disregard it? I mean, the church does disregard it. I imagine if you asked a thousand Christian pastors to make a list of sexually immoral practices, they'd write down most of the stuff in Leviticus 18, bestiality, incest, adultery, homosexual sex. And many would include watching porn based on Jesus's teaching about lust. But would anyone include a man making love to his wife while she's on her period in the same category of sexual immorality as Leviticus does? <laughs> what a great question. Right? So the question is, dude, okay. So, so Leviticus 18 has been instrumental in shaping our, our understanding of sexual immorality. And yet, here is this clear, weird thing that no yeah. one pays attention to now. So does that, do we still have to pay attention to Leviticus 18? It's kind of the, when you quote it in uh, debates about um, uh, homosexuality and they, they bring up lobster. Well, you eat lobster, don't you? And you know, I mean that, so this is old Testament, new Testament. This is this. So this gets into a lot of really interesting stuff. All right. Do you want to, you want to kick this one off or you want me to take, no, <laughs> She's saying, no. no, no, not at all. Um, oh, you might. All right. <laughs> well, okay. So first of all, uh, there are two, it seems like there are two different questions. First is, did this inform what Jesus and the Jewish contemporaries thought of sexual immorality? Yes. So at no question, and this, and this is why when I think we get into conversations about homosexuality, the, the appeal to Leviticus is both important and utterly insignificant. Um, it's important in this kind of respect, however. Uh, Jesus... Um, the, the, the Jews of Jesus's day and earlier 
would have understood sexuality based around the ideal presented in Genesis 1 and then the prohibitions given in, Gen or in Leviticus 18 and 19, what was traditionally called the holiness code. And it's all about holiness, being distinct from your neighbors, not, not being um, like the people in the land that you are inhabiting, um, and, and dissuading people from the sexual practices of the day and calling them into this Genesis 1 and 2 thing. Now, by the time the lang our language turns Greek, what in the, in the Greek language, the Greek translation of, uh, called the Septuagint of the Old Testament, um, that, there was a one word that summarized the holiness code, and that was the word pornea. The word pornea, the Greek word pornea, meant the holiness code of Leviticus. So it was this really big, elastic word that translates into English as sexual morality. So when Paul says, flee sexual morality, he's not just thinking, like people have asked me, well, where does the Bible say you can't have premarital sex? Well, again, it, it doesn't have a specific word for that. What it has instead is a word that means any sexual activity outside of a covenantal understanding. Now, that's all fine and good. However, as we know, the, the Old Testament's full of polygamy and, and all sorts of sexual deviation among yeah. God's heroes, right? So, so yes, this is significant in the sense that you cannot say historically or theologically that Jesus or Paul um, was ill-informed about the sexual mores of, of the Roman greater Roman society or would have not had an opinion on those things. Um, I, I think I think we can make a very good case that pornea encompasses almost all categories of sexual sin. And that so in that way Leviticus informs what they call pornea. Yes. Okay. On the other hand, um, appeals to Leviticus go very much are, are very easily dismissed because of the simple counterexample this guy gives here. Okay, so por so so pornea means sex with uh, or rules out sex with a woman while she's on her monthly cycle. Well, are we all fighting that battle too? And the answer is, of course not. Are we, in the same way, we're not fighting the lobster battle or the uh, you know we're eating pork. We celebrate. Good goodness, the Jewish holiday of all Jewish holidays, Easter, with ham, for crying out loud, right? I mean, we could not be farther away from, from that. So on the one hand, the holiness code matters because it informed the, Paul's, Paul and Jesus' thinking about what the, the term pornea would have meant and how it would have been understood. But on the other hand, I spend zero time in Leviticus when I teach about sexuality, um, because it's, it's part and parcel with some of the dietary laws, some of the holiness code that was very specific to ethnic Israel. Um, so I, that's just not a battle I choose to choose to get into. Does that make sense, Sophie? In other yeah. words, did I answer the question and what did, did I answer it clearly? <laughs> Possibly. Cause that's a tri That's a tricky one. Um, yeah, I'm swimming a little bit. Uh, okay. All right. So. So is it even worth ever mentioning Leviticus then in, in any conversation, like any reasonable conversation about sexuality? Is it? Well, okay. My, my personal opinion, and again, people will so disagree with this. Um, my personal opinion is that Jesus talks about sexuality in two places specifically now more than that he talks about lust and so yes it's just there's that one and then some people think when he's talking about poking your eye out or cutting your hand off he's talking about sexuality i think it's much bigger than that um uh but he talks about things that come from the heart and out of the mouth as the things that make you unclean right he's he's confronting this idea that no no, no it was what was going in your mouth that made you unclean and he's like no no, no. what comes out of the mouth is it reflects the heart is what makes you unclean. And he uses this phrase, sexual immorality. In another place, in Matthew 19, Jesus is brought into a discussion about divorce code, a, 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 a regulation uh, that was given in Deuteronomy. And Jesus is brought into this discussion. And in order to resolve it in one very specific direction, he appeals to Yes, the, the prohibition was given because of the hardness of your hearts and God was dealing with suboptimal conditions. But the regulation 
that was not the ideal. The ideal was, it was, and he uses this phrase, as it was in the beginning. And then he quotes from Genesis. So I think Leviticus is relevant anytime somebody wants to say, well, Jesus never talked about sexuality. Uh, and you can say, no, I think he did. And he, he, he gave the very Jewish view. Now, he was way more restrictive than some of his contemporaries when it came to divorce. He was way more permissive than a lot of his contemporaries when it came to eating with sinners and how you handled sexual sin. I mean, some of the most, in, most incredible stories of the Gospels are him dealing with sexually broken people. Right. And then they, and then even yeah. in the book of Acts with a eunuch and I mean, you just, there's this whole backdrop that is remarkable, but, but, and then now, now the gay community will have counters to all of this and we can get into those, right. Mm -hmm. um, they will say the Leviticus codes are dealing with a very specific kind of homosexual act. Um, not dealing with, uh, Pornia does not talk about orientation, does not talk about gender theory. I mean, you know, the, the ancients were unknown. They just, they, they didn't have any idea about these sorts of things and their responses to those. And, you know, we can, we can hash all those out, but Leviticus, I think is relevant in that regard. It packs what Jesus means when he says sexual immorality. It's not relevant in the sense of, hey, guys, here's a verse I'm going to use to squash people with. Okay. Hey, so, you're, an ab you're an abomination is what people will mm -hmm. do with Leviticus. And the weaponizing of the Bible in that regard is an offense to everything Jesus stood for, right? I mean, we would agree right. with that. So go, go ahead. So basically, it's not a standalone. It can only be used as a filter. None of them. None of them are standalone. Yeah. That, that's the issue. Okay. So, so the gay community calls these the clobber verses, or at least some of my friends have called them the clobber verses because they're, they're, they clobber people over the head. Yeah. Yeah. And, and if you're going to use the clobber method, the, then you open yourself up to being clobbered in other places like, hey, let me, let me, here's, here's this passage in Leviticus about not having sex when a woman's on her monthly cycle. All right. You don't obey that. See? A counter clobber is what that was. So, so if you're gonna if you're gonna use the clobber method, yeah, right, you just set yourself up for some of the wackiest. And because the Bible is so freaking messy and ugly in, in places, and and it's uh, to me it's incredible because it's so raw. But yeah. but clearly, if you're gonna if you're gonna try to clobber people with thou shalt nots, there's always there are always counterexamples if you're gonna clobber. Yeah. And so, so I think you're absolutely right. These, if I were going to make an argument either direction, the best argument I've heard or that I think of about uh, affirming um, our understanding of homo homosexual orientation and, and gay marriage and, and those sorts of things is one we've talked about in other episodes, the kind of accommodationist argument. It's not the ideal, but neither is most heterosexual marriage the ideal either. And so, boom, what do you do with that? The second, uh, the, the, the best argument for the traditional view isn't Leviticus or Romans or Timothy. It's Genesis 1 and 2 affirmed by Jesus in Matthew 19 as the creation ideal. And so, and then the call to reproduce. And so, okay, what, that then opens up. So, so, so first of all, to get back to what you were saying, yeah, I don't, I don't ever want to use the clobber method. Ever. That's just mm -hmm. awful. Leviticus is one of those clobber things, but it opens you up to this kind of counterexample. So I would, I would much rather tell the story of scripture in its big picture and how sexuality fits into that rather than just because, I mean, you can thou shalt not anything. And yet, I mean, here's David committing adultery and here's, you know, Abraham offering his wife um, you know, Sarah to the Egyptians and here's, you know, Paul murdering. I mean, you just like, obviously, yeah. obviously the, the ideal is the ideal, but God is willing to work with those who fall short of it. Yeah. Well, and so, if your, if your intention ahead. is to clobber anyone, you should probably yeah. look at, look there first before engaging in any conversation. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great point. No one's been clobbered into the kingdom. No, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, no, that's good. So I so so the reason I like this question is it was about sexuality, but it was bigger. Yeah. 
Yeah. You know, it's like, how do we use these passages? And, um, you know, for Jesus, um, and this is what I can't get around. Uh, Jesus had a, a view of the Old Testament that was authoritative. Mm-hmm. And the way he quotes it and the way he talks about it and the way he uses it in discussions with the Pharisees and teachers of the law, it's clear he was a man of the Torah. And, um, you know, that that is some good news and some bad news, right? Because the, the good news, of course, is that Jesus um, uh, presents what God is like in his holiness in an incredible way. Um, and that, and that what Jesus embodies when he embodies Torah is so different from what we understood Torah to be, which is amazing. But on the other hand, it means that Jesus is exclusive and inclusive. And that's the hardest thing, Sophie, I'm trying to figure out, like, I'm, I'm literally trying to, to figure out a theology that makes room for Jesus eating with sinners and saying, if you do not hate your mother and father, you cannot be my disciple. Like, mm-hmm. so, so the Jesus movement is exclusive. Um, he, and he made it exclusive and yet it's the most inclusive thing ever. So I have no idea how to put those things together. Do you? No, no, I have no idea. <laughs> Can you help me? <laughs> <laughs> no, unfortunately I cannot. Well, let's work on it because to me that's, uh, cause I'm, well, what, as the more I read the gospels, the more I'm just sitting and I know I'm rambling, I'm sorry, but there were the like the call the summons to discipleship like it was a summons yeah. it wasn't a hey dude i love you mm. i mean it was yeah and then repent because the kingdom's here okay but then he was talking to jews who knew what repentant and kingdom were but when he's dealing with like the centurion um i've never seen such great faith outside of israel or i've never seen such great faith within israel uh i mean Ah, it just it just blows my it blows my circuits because there there's a sense in which when when we've reduced the conversation on sexuality about clobbering people about homosexuality like there's this thing that's being missed on both sides of that equation mm-hmm. right cuz nobody on the one hand nobody gets to negotiate the terms of surrender to Jesus right yeah. i mean even though we all try but on the other hand Jesus lets me think I'm negotiating the terms of surrender over a very long period of time. And that's what discipleship turns out to be. Right. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know. Just rambling, but what, I thought it was a great question. Absolutely. I thought it was a great question. Now, when you, when, when you talk about like male in, and and men and women in the church, yeah. if you were going to make a biblical argument for it, you had mentioned Paul and you'd mentioned Jesus. Um, what else, what else would you throw in there? Masters, masters agree. What else would you throw in there? Um, I would, yeah, go ahead. No, no, no. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Uh, I was just trying to avoid the, um, it hurt when they did this. So their theology is bad. Oh, that, that is very much a form of argument in our culture today. Yeah, no, no, no. I, when I, and and here's the thing, this is what I find interesting. I find that this argument is used by both egalitarians and complementarians. So I don't know if it's really the best argument, but when I look at Genesis and I look at how God created, um, you know, Adam and Eve, and then the subsequent terms of the, the fall, to me, it seems that God's intentions were for equality, but one of the results of the fall is that there's going to be this power struggle. Um, Come on, preach. Preach Yeah, you know, so it says that, like, women will want to have authority over their husbands, but they will rule over them. Uh, And and so so when I hear that, I hear this, there's a power struggle going on, which wasn't meant to be there. Because um, this is after the sin that. of Adam and Eve. This was not right. before. Right. So, um, yeah, I, I, I just think from my readings of Genesis, I see that um, men and women are equal. So, yeah. it's, but to, to be completely fair, I, I've had this conversation 
actually pretty frequently with some people in my church. Uh, and, and I kind of get tongue tied on it. I find it to be a hard discussion to have. Um, Mm. and there are good, there are good arguments on both sides, really. Uh, and I'm not always equipped. I'm not always ready and I try my best. Um, but in, for, for now, it seems to me that, that pre-fall, it seems that there was meant to Mm -hmm. be quality. So. Absolutely. And, and and our complementarian brothers and sisters would say that. Absolutely. They would they would then say that that some of them, not all of them, some of them would say there's hierarchy there too. Yeah, that's um, that's been the hardest. So actually you can tell me what you think of this. this that's been the hardest <laughs> argument that I, I'm not quite sure what to say to. I was told that there is um hierarchy in the Trinity and that uh marriage looks like you know as a example of the trinity and you know jesus submits to the father and holy spirit submits to jesus so we can see a clear hierarchy in the trinity. <laughs> <laughs> I, like i don't know yeah. i heard i was yeah a no, little like that, i have no idea what to say yeah. to that so there have been a couple of theologians who've advocated that and they've been completely destroyed by the bible there there is not hierarchy that is that is so anachronistic and forced upon the text. Again, I mean, this is like I get fired up about this because it's actually actually one of the things I deem heretical. Okay, is it now? It, it is they would call it a functional subordination. Okay, uh, in the Trinity, where the Father uh, functionally subordinates Himself, even though He's of equal, you know, even though He's equally God and so on. And Jesus gives words to this when He's talking about. I only do what the father says. I only do, you know, da, 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 da. Yeah. But that can't be read back in what their Trinitarian state is prior to Jesus's incarnation, in my view. There, so there's, there's some deep, there's some deep weeds there that I have, su- I have massive problems with. Okay. The argument I hear a lot from Genesis is, well, Adam named the animals and naming the animals is an expression of authority over them. And then look, here he names the woman in Genesis two. Um, and, uh, and, and so people will say on that basis, see Adam is exercising authority over Eve. Um, and, uh, and therefore there was hierarchy. Now, again, they pack hierarchy with things that were not, I, I just think are very modern and not intended at all by the biblical authors. But if that were true, and and it's not, um, uh, even then, uh, what do you do with with Adam naming Eve after the fall? So what he does in Genesis two is he classifies her as woman. He doesn't name her. He doesn't only names her in Genesis three, and not only that, there's a huge debate over what the Adam is that's naming. Is it masculine? Because remember, Adam was split. And to male and female. So was Adam just male and female was created? Or as many Hebrew scholars think, yeah. Adam was androgynous. And because the word Adam, Adam, can yeah. either mean the Adam, the man, or Adam, humanity. Yeah. So, so in Genesis, it's super tricky because it goes back and forth using Adam in a plural way or in a singular way. And, and, and there's some, and I know some totally think this is loony, but, but there, I, I think there's some decent arguments that we're not even talking about a gendered male prior to when Adam and Eve become gendered as a male and a female. So, wow. so if that's true, and I'm, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that would be a, a very fascinating discussion for maybe four of us. If that's true, then it wasn't the gendered male who was naming anything. It was the gendered male who named Eve only after the fall. But, okay. but he just recognized in Genesis 2, that great poem, you are flesh of my flesh, blood of my blood. You are woman for you were taken out of man. Well, that was the way that Adam was named, right? Adam, uh, Adam was named from the ground. The woman was named from the man. And that was, that was just, those were classifications. Those were not names in the way that yeah. the animals were named. Anyway, so I, I'm with you. The functional subordination argument, we can get into that, uh, but that's really, that, that's been very pounded on. And the way it was initially formulated in defensive complementarity was was really really off and so 
there was a guy I used to love named Wayne Grudem, uh, but he he started pro- uh, promoting this and. I don't know. Uh, there have been uh, there have been some responses to it that I think are just devastating theologically. So I would disagree that there's hierarchy in the Trinity. I think that's a very convenient um, to try to argue that. Uh, <laughs> yes. And um, and sorry to get fired up, but you're right. I mean that. No. So for me, the argument is Genesis one clearly teaches the man and the woman in every way were equal and worthy of dignity. Yeah. Yes, they were different. Of right. course they were different. So in that way, of course, there's complementarianism there. The mm-hmm. man, the, the, the woman was called an Ezer Konegdo, which was an, an alike opposite counterpart. Yeah. Right? I mean, really amazing language. So of course, of course, of course, there's differences. But when you get into the New Testament and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, it's on men and women. And then you see this in the early church. So you, they are... So, I would argue that the, the, the see, because what the complementarians do is then clobber. So here's the first Timothy clobber passage. Here's yeah. the first Corinthians clobber passage. And again, if you're going to clobber, you open yourself up to all the counterexamples, right? Of, mm-hmm. Well, what do you do with Junia? And what do you do with Priscilla? And all those yeah. sorts of things. I'm sorry. I just get fired up. Oh, I, 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 hate... I feel you. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> well, no, I just... I... Bonnie has taught me, my friend Bonnie has taught me a lot about what it's been like to try to be a teacher as a young lady and how really difficult that has been. Yeah. And you've experienced that. To to a lesser extent. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. But, but yeah, I mean, just the whole, okay, take the teacher off of it and just being a young woman in, in a church community. And so it's just, I don't know. I, I think that, I think that, um, I think this whole thing that God's doing, blowing up stuff in the church, uh, I think it's absolutely God. Absolutely. Your sin will find you out. Yeah. You know, and end of story. So I, I don't see it as a bad thing, even though I have to be honest, I look back at things I've said and done and I'm like, oh my word, I would never say and do those things now. Like, yeah. I can't imagine what it would have been like to be a woman in a room you know, in, in, in some of those conversations or whatever. I mean, it's just like, Oh my goodness. So anyway, Sophie, sorry. Any, any final thoughts? Well, just on what you said, um, I think that's an important part of our journey is looking back, knowing we've done something, you know, that was, uh, we knew it wasn't right. You know, now we know it's not right. And, um, and admitting to it and, and moving forward and growing from that. I think that's a part important part of being a human, an important part of being a Christian. And I think to bring it full circle, that'll be a really important part of this Me Too movement is saying, yeah, I have done things that were wrong in the past. Um, and I recognize it and I'm remorseful and I want to be better. So. Oh, that's so good. That's so good. That's right. So my brothers and sisters, um, we got through three or four. I mean, that's, we did all right. Uh, I cannot tell you how amazing, and, and, and by the way, and I know I say this a lot, but man, the, the goal here isn't to present ourselves as experts, <laughs> but it's to honor the questions because they're so good and they, and they bring, and there, I imagine there's so much behind them, even before you get to the place where you email in a question. So uh, really, I mean, we're just honored to be able to to throw some thoughts out. But um, there was a, and I've referred this, and I've got to find it, Sophie, but did you see it was an article, a study, oh, I think it was a study that was done talking about how the silence of parents on big questions their kids have is worse than an I don't know. Mm. Like it's it's destructive to them of just either not ever talking about them or so it's like, yeah, have the odd conversation with your kid about sex. Yes. And not just one, there's a whole, I mean, some of the, my goodness, Sophie, some of the conversations we've had around our dinner, dinner room table. (laughs) Oh my Lord. And I'm horrified at some of the stuff. My eighth grade daughter has now learned are things that are true. Oh, but there was this huge research that just said our silence and the silence on the, of the church on some of these big questions i think is so damaging to people so anyway thanks for being a willing conversation partner today i very very much appreciate it yeah thanks for having me 
Oh my goodness, Sophie. Yes. Um, so my brothers and sisters, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine his face upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance to you. And in these days, may he give you peace. Amen. Till next time.